listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading for today is Ruth chapter 2 in your pew Bibles. It's on page 211. Now, Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I might find favor. She said to her, go, my daughter. So she went. She came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. As it happened, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. They answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, to whom does this young woman belong? The young man who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. So she came and she has been on her feet from early this morning until now without resting for even for a moment. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped and follow behind them. I have ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Sorry. Then she fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, May I continue to find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some of this bread and dip your morsel in the sour wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he heaped up for her some parched grain. She ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she got up to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, Let her glean even among the standing sheaves, and do not reproach her. You must also pull out some handfuls for her from the bundles and leave them for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. She picked it up and came into the town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gleaned. Then she took out and gave her what was left over after she herself had been satisfied. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked saying, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he by the Lord 
whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest kin. Then Ruth, the Moabite, said, he even said to me, stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is better, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, otherwise someone might bother you in another field. So she stayed close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Julie, for that reading. Oh, man. Ah, so good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Dan. It is uh, so good to be with you today. I want to give another shout out to Dick because that, that solo was beautiful. <clears throat> that was awesome. That was really cool. Um, I also want to give a thank you to Harry and Gretchen Beaver. Um, I forgot to write down, how long have you guys been married? How many years? 59 years they've been married, which is incredible, which is awesome. Um, and if you weren't here last week to hear, so because the book of Ruth is a love story, we're having some of the couples in our church who've been married the longest light the Advent wreath um, this year. So shout out to you two. That's fantastic. We are continuing with our study of Ruth today, uh, but I want to do a quick recap before we dive into chapter two, uh, just to see how much you all remember. Does that sound good? A, a quiz. <laughs> Yay. Um, <laughs> but no, so uh, we've been in the first chapter of Ruth for two weeks now. Uh, and I know a couple weeks ago, Pastor Elisha encouraged everyone to read the book of Ruth sometime in Advent. Did, uh, did anyone take a stab at that yet? Anybody read Ruth? Okay, a couple of us, not that many, that is, that is okay, um, because there's still time, you guys. The book of Ruth is only four pages long. You can do this. I believe in you. Um, it's one of the few books in our Bible that you can knock out in a sitting pretty easily, so... Um, Anyway, for those who haven't read it, or maybe if you were gone the last couple weeks, let's recap what we covered. The book of Ruth opens with the story of a woman who loses everything. She's sort of a female Job. Does anyone remember that lady's name? Naomi. That is right. Correct. Naomi leaves her hometown of Bethlehem during a famine. Does anyone remember what Bethlehem means? House of bread. You guys are paying attention. I love it. There's a famine in the house of bread. Irony. Um, Naomi relocates to the country of Moab with her husband and her two sons. Her sons take Moabite wives, one of whom is named Ruth. That's the easy one. Very good. Um, by the way, the other, the other uh, Moabite daughter-in-law uh, is Orpah. And fun fact, Oprah Winfrey's name comes from Orpah. It's a different spelling of Orpah. So, you know, that's, that's your next trivia night. You have that. Um, now... While Naomi is in Moab, tragedy befalls the family. Uh, her husband dies and her two sons die, leaving Naomi completely destitute. Uh, Orpah goes back to her father's house because Naomi really has nothing to offer her, no way to protect her or provide for her. But Ruth clings to Naomi. She promises to go wherever Naomi goes. She declares her allegiance to Naomi's God and Naomi's people. And the two women go back to Bethlehem, widowed, defenseless, and poor. Following the story so far? Okay. As a Moabite, Ruth is now a foreigner in a hostile land because Israel and Moab did not get along at this time in history. And Naomi, after enduring all this tragedy and loss, changes her name to Mara. That's right, which means bitterness. Very good. She says, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly 
with me. Give yourselves a round of applause because you guys did pretty good with that. Way to remember. That's the story so far. Ruth is a really cool book for a lot of reasons, um, but one of the things I like is that it's, it's one of the few books in the Bible that centers on the experience of women. But in Ruth chapter 2, we meet a man, and he's a man of noble character named Boaz. Ruth goes out to glean in the fields, uh, and she just so happens to wind up gleaning in the field of Boaz, who just so happens to be a close living relative of Naomi's late husband. Now, I'm going to guess most of us are not that familiar with gleaning, right? Has anyone, has anyone heard of the practice of gleaning? Okay, a few people, a few of us know about it. We can go to the next slide, too, uh, up there, if that's cool. Gleaning, that's sort of what it might have looked like. Gleaning was part of the social safety net in ancient Israel. Uh, Ancient Israel, the world of the Bible, was a rural society. Just about everyone was a farmer. And the Israelites had a law that stipulated farmers could not harvest the edges of their field. You can harvest whatever you want from within the field, but you have to leave all the crops that grow along the edge of your fields for the poor. It's basically like ancient food stamps. That's the idea with gleaning. It was a way to make sure everyone had food. As long as your feet stayed on the road bordering the property, you could take whatever food you could reach so that you didn't go hungry. And the farmers weren't allowed to stop you. That was your food. It was a super progressive law for about 3,000 years ago. So if you ever hear a Christian today complaining about people on food stamps, you could tell them to read the book of Ruth um, because this is a good thing. This is a positive thing. It's part of the Jewish law. We're going to talk about Boaz today, uh, this man of noble character, and there's a lot of different ways we could go with this. We could talk about stewardship, how we are called to uh, steward what we have for the good of others. We could talk about hunger and how in the United States today, in the richest country on earth, there are still 44 million people who face hunger, most of them children. We could talk about that. We could talk about immigration uh, and the Bible's call to welcome foreigners and refugees. We could talk about social policy and how we treat the poor, all very good, relevant stuff. But today, I want to talk about masculinity. Because if anyone is a paragon of masculinity, it's this guy. (laughs) Right? No. No, not at all. Men are in trouble, you guys. Uh, To my fellow dudes here, I think we've had a good run, Um, (laughs) but I am very concerned about the state of men in America today. Um, There's been a lot of talk, a lot of think pieces on like TV and in newspapers about the masculinity crisis we're facing in the 21st century. Men appear to be on a downward trajectory. Now, let me acknowledge the obvious point up front. Patriarchy is still very much a thing, right? Um, Let's not kid ourselves about that. Men make up just under half of uh, the U.S. population, and yet we are two-thirds of the Supreme Court. I don't know how that math works out. Um, 71% of Congress is male. 92% of Fortune 500 CEOs are male. There's more CEOs named Mark than there are women, which is is like wild. Um, Men are doing okay, but masculinity is a bit of a mess, I think got some stats up here we're going to put on the slides um, showing some of the issues with this crisis. 75% of all deaths of despair, that includes stuff like suicides, overdoses, uh, deaths from diseases related to drugs and alcohol. 75% of all deaths of despair in America are men. 
For every 100 bachelor's degrees earned by women in the U.S., only 74 are earned by men. Men are dropping out of the workforce at higher rates than women. Boys now trail girls academically on average in every single grade in every single state, which is not a good thing. Single adult men in the United States are now more likely to live with their parents than with a romantic partner or a roommate. And these are just some of the stats that social scientists are pointing to about this masculinity crisis. Um, now, some of this could be seen as progress, right? Um, the income gap between men and women is starting slowly to shrink. Uh, back in 1980, only 13% of women earned more than the average man. Today, that's 40%. That's progress. That's amazing. But we're starting to see a dark side, especially among young, unmarried men in America, men with access to military-grade weapons, an increasing number of whom are angry, isolated, and struggling. Uh, in a recent opinion piece for the Washington Post, uh, columnist Christine Emba put it this way. We've got her quote to put up on the screens. Deindustrialization, automation, free trade, and peacetime have shifted the labor market dramatically and not in men's favor. The need for physical labor has declined, while soft skills and academic credentials are increasingly rewarded. Growing numbers of working-age men have detached from the labor market with the biggest drop in employment among men ages 25 to 34. Meanwhile, women are surging ahead in school and in the workplace, putting a further dent in the provider model that has long been ingrained in our concept of masculinity. In a nutshell, over the last 40 years, we've seen huge progress in terms of opportunities for women, doors opening for women, a broader understanding of what women can be and do, which is amazing but we have not seen similar progress in what it means to be a man. We hear that men are toxic, men are pigs, men are trash, um, but we don't have a lot of good examples of what good, healthy masculinity in the 21st century looks like. So a lot of men out there feel stuck. We've got our aggression, our brute force, that desire to protect and provide, our pig-headedness, all that stereotypical man stuff, but we have less socially uh, acceptable, socially productive means in which to exercise that energy. And there aren't a lot of great ideas out there about what masculinity should be in the 21st century. Instead, we've got manfluencers. How many of <laughs> anyone familiar with the term manfluencer? It's like an influencer for men. Get it? You get the idea? Um, <clears throat> Across social media and the internet, uh, there's a growing movement of macho gurus for men who are putting out their own vision of masculinity. Um, now, some of this stuff is relatively harmless, but a lot of it is laced with chauvinism, patriarchy, and violence. Uh, on one side of the spectrum, you've got someone like Jordan Peterson. Has anyone heard of Jordan, P Jordan Peterson? Are we familiar? Okay. A couple of young men are familiar, <laughs> I like that. Um, Jordan Peterson is a psychologist, a best-selling author, who has gained quite a following among young, disaffected men, and it never fails. If I meet a guy in his 20s and we talk for any length of time, they always bring up Jordan Peterson now. It's like I brace myself for it, like, oh great, this guy's gonna mention Jordan Peterson, and he does. Um, he's highly influential. 
Peterson has become uh, increasingly radical in recent years, increasingly kind of out there and fringy. But um, the bulk of his writing, especially his early stuff, is pretty banal. Uh, his 12 rules for life include stuff like stand up straight with your shoulders back, clean your room, make your bed, get a job. T typical like middle-aged dad stuff. Pretty tame in terms of what's out there. On the other side of a pretty unhealthy spectrum though, there's a figure like Andrew Tate. I'm guessing most of us have not heard of Andrew Tate. A, a couple, a, a couple younger folks have heard of Andrew Tate. Um, I guarantee you if this sanctuary was filled with young, single, angry white dudes, 95% uh, would have heard of Andrew Tate. Uh, former kickboxer, failed reality star, uh, reality TV star, Andrew Tate is a social media personality with eight and a half million followers on Twitter and millions more across various other platforms. He's usually photographed with a cigar in his mouth or by a sports car. Um, he posts workout videos with his shirt off where he talks about how much he can bench and how many women he slept with. He routinely refers to women as property. Andrew Tate is also currently facing multiple allegations of sexual assault and, and worse, which should not surprise any of us. But in light of sort of our failure to put out a healthy vision of masculinity, this is what a large number of men are now flocking to. It's more of a child's parody of masculinity than the real thing. You know, like, like Andrew Tate is a weak person's understanding of what a strong person should be. It's not the real thing. Now, unfortunately, we are not going to solve the 21st century masculinity crisis in a sermon. I tried this week, but I just I couldn't get there. I couldn't crack it. Um, but what we can do as Christians is hold up positive examples of masculinity from our tradition and from our scriptures. And when it comes to the examples of men we have in the Bible, probably one of the healthiest ones is Boaz. Boaz is presented in the book of Ruth as the paragon of masculinity. If you were to ask, what is the Old Testament's ideal of a man, Boaz would be the answer. Um, this is why it really annoys me that the book of Ruth is usually relocated to like women's ministries, women's groups, uh, female-led small groups. That's usually where the book of Ruth is being studied. If anyone needs to read the book of Ruth, it is men. Because Boaz is amazing. <laughs> um, he's one of the rare male figures in the Old Testament who's not a complete dirtbag. His name literally means strength, but Boaz in Hebrew is not so much brute strength, it's more strength of mind and strength of character. Uh, it's a concept that's very much parallel to the idea of wisdom. When we look at the book of Proverbs and it talks about the wise man, the wise man does this, the wise man does that, Boaz is the wise man that Proverbs is talking about. Are we following this? Okay. The text describes him as a prominent rich man, which is true. Uh, Boaz is incredibly wealthy. He's definitely a one percenter. But the language being used here doesn't just apply to wealth. And um, some older Bible translations render this line, a man of noble character. And I actually think that's a better translation because it conveys the idea that Boaz is a good guy. This is someone who has lived life well. He's a man of deep faith who follows the law uh, he lives his life with the goal of honoring God and other people, and Boaz has reaped the benefits of a life well lived. Things have worked out pretty well for this guy. 
Boaz is presented as an incredible, uh, incredibly powerful figure. He has influence, he has authority, um, he's respected in the, in the community, but his, his power doesn't lie in brute force. It lies in his compassion, character, and faith. Boaz's strength isn't about how much he can bench or how many women he slept with. He's not described as a stra- strapping man with a chiseled jawline and six-pack abs. In fact, The text doesn't tell us anything about what Boaz looks like. His strength flows from his character. So much of how our culture views masculinity, and femininity for that matter, um, is about external stuff, right? Um, The way we present ourselves to the world. You have to uh, look a certain way, talk a certain way, walk a certain way, stand up straight with your shoulders back. It's all external. We would get a lot further in life I think you'd be a lot more successful generally if you focus on being kind to people, being compassionate. If your strength is rooted in love, in allowing God's love to flow through you to others, that's the picture of masculinity we have in Boaz. Real men care for the poor. They keep their word. They exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Good men know how to honor women. And we don't treat our romantic partners as some sort of a conquest. Manipulation, domination, control, that is not true masculinity because it doesn't flow from the love of God. When we meet Boaz, he's greeting the workers in his field with a blessing. He offers Ruth one heck of a blessing. Every word that comes out of this guy's mouth and every action he takes is designed to lift other people up, to elevate others. He uses his power for the good of those without power. Ruth is at the lowest possible position in Israelite society. She's poor, she's female, she's a widow, she's a foreigner. She's from Moab, of all places. She's caring for her elderly mother-in-law, and she has no one watching out for her or protecting her. When Ruth steps out into the world and into these fields, she is incredibly vulnerable. So Boaz tells her, when you come out to glean, don't go to any other fields. Stick to this field. Stay with the women who work for me. They'll watch out for you. He's surrounding her with community to protect her. Boaz tells Ruth, I have ordered the young men not to bother you. Don't skip this line. Really easy to gloss over this. Uh, Another modern translation renders this verse, I have ordered the young men not to assault you. That is what this verse is saying. Boaz realizes that Ruth is vulnerable. He knows she's exposed. So he tells all the little wannabe Andrew Tates who work for him, you leave that woman alone. If you mess with her, you're messing with me, and I am twice the man you are. That's Boaz. Um, He treats Ruth as one of his hired hands, further elevating her. He tells her to drink from the same water the employees drink from, sit at the table with the other workers. He feeds her and lets her keep the leftovers. Boaz tells the men working in the fields, let her glean wherever she wants, basically. She goes a little too far. If she takes some of the good grain, it's cool. In fact, 
why don't you drop a few handfuls of barley here and there so she can find them and take them home with her. And by the end of her first day gleaning, Ruth has collected an ephah of barley. You guys don't look that impressed at an ephah of barley. Um, We don't really know exactly what an ephah of barley was, but it's at least six gallons of barley kernels. So take six milk jugs, fill them with the little barley kernels. That's how much Ruth has collected. Um, It's estimated that that's how much could feed a small family for about 10 days. 30 pounds of barley, at least. That is a buttload of of barley, you guys. That's a lot of barley. This is why Naomi is like, whose field did you glean in? Boaz has been ridiculously kind to Ruth, a person who has no hope, no way of repaying him. Ruth is someone that has nothing to offer Boaz that he could possibly need, but he's heard of all the good stuff she's done. He's heard of how she suffered, how she stayed with Naomi, how she declared her allegiance to a foreign people and to their gods. He's aware of this woman's character, and he seeks to bless her because game respects game. It's worth noting, too, that Boaz is following the Torah. He's following the Jewish law. Don't harvest the edges of your field. Leave it for the poor to glean. Welcome the foreigner in your midst, for you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Care for orphans and widows in their distress. All of this is from the law, and Boaz follows it to the letter because he's a man of faith. He's a man of noble character. Biblical manhood, so to speak, does not begin with brute strength. It begins with faith. Devote yourself to the way of Jesus. Ask God to transform your heart. Strive to be a blessing to others, and especially the least of these. That's what being a man looks like in the Bible. If we ground ourselves in the way of Jesus, we are going to see that power does not exist to be hoarded or used against others. Power exists to be given away. All those stereotypical masculine instincts, the drive to protect, to defend, to rescue, to provide. All that stuff can be incredibly good and God-honoring if we submit it to the way of Jesus. It doesn't have to be toxic. Men still have tremendous power in society. That's not going away anytime soon. But dudes in here, use that power to elevate others, especially women. Harness that desire to protect and defend toward protecting and defending the most vulnerable in our society. If you have anger, aggression, frustration, a drive to fight, channel that energy into the fight for justice. This is something, by the way, that all of us can do, male or female. Um, Whatever power you have in the world, wherever you have sway or influence, you can use that to elevate those without power. It's not just a man thing. It's a Boaz thing, but it's something we can all do. It's also a Jesus way to be. If we can go to the next slide. This, (laughs) uh, oh gosh, this is not Jesus. Can we, amen? Can we amen that? That is not what Jesus looked like. If we look at the ideal image of a man that is idolized by our society, a dude with ripped muscles, sports car, girl on each arm, that image of manhood could not be further from the image of Jesus. 
This next slide is Jesus. Note the contrast. This is what a man looked like who was in every way equal with God. He was with God from the beginning, seated at the right hand of God in heaven, and he gave all that power up to rescue us. He became a helpless little baby, born to an impoverished family, an unwed mother in a feeding trough. Jesus entered into all of that to rescue us. Let that be your guiding image of what a man looks like. Root yourself in faith. Pursue wisdom and compassion. Learn to live well in the world and then take whatever power, privilege, and influence you have and use it to elevate others. That is what a real man looks like and it's a pretty solid model for women too. Let's pray. God, help us to have a Boaz model of masculinity. When we think of what a man looks like, Lord, help us to think of Jesus. Humble, loving, compassionate, rooted in faith, and undeniably compelling. We pray for our sons, Lord, for our brothers, all the young guys out there who feel rudderless and left behind, that you would leave, lead them to positive role models, root them in Christ-honoring community, and give them a Jesus-shaped vision of what it is to be a man. Amen.